on in this topic. We're going to dismiss our children now to their learning center. So children ages first grade through fifth grade, your teachers are waiting for you right now in the education center. Before we pray, um, I want to give what amounts to a breaking news item. For those of us in Allen Creek who have been here for any length of time, you know we have many international ministry partners. One of them is in Pakistan. His name is Rashid Masih. He is a church planter and um, is doing kind of amazing work in an Islamic country uh, under the heavy hand of some oppression, and that came uh, into vivid relief last night, which was their Sunday morning. Uh, two suicide bombers attacked the mostly Christian community on the east side of Lahore, where his church is located, and several others. They didn't attack his church, but another couple, a Protestant church and a Catholic church. There are, I think, at least 15 dead. There's about 45 gravely wounded, and Rashid is in the middle of the mess. Um, He called in tears this morning. And so um, if you can remember that, and um, also, I guess, by way of introducing our topic, among the things would cause us to doubt whether there is a good God behind our universe are things like the terrible evil of religious persecution. And your brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing it. And if you've seen Rashid, he's been up on this stage. Now you know you are connected by friendship to someone who's living in the middle of it. And right now he and his people are in tears this morning. So it would be appropriate for us to shed some tears with them. And let's pray for them now. God, we ask for your hand to surround Rashid, our brother, and all the brothers and sisters that we have in Pakistan who right now are awash in the valley of the shadow of death. And so may they um, be comforted, may they be protected, may you surround them by your ministering spirits. May they sense the support of those who love and care for them around the world in prayers and intangible giving. And I pray that... um, Uh, you would draw some good end out of this terrible tragedy. Father, there's many things in this world that cause us to question and wonder and doubt, and this is one of them. So God, would you be our teacher this morning? And as we think about the world that is pressing up against faith, uh, we are asking for help. We are asking, we are seeking, we are knocking. And may the door be opened. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let me begin with this caveat. Um, it begins with a story. Uh, my wife was involved in a Bible study. This is probably uh, 25 years ago now, or back more than that. And uh, she's in youth group, so those days are, well, practically yesterday. But um, anyhow, a long time ago, she was involved in a, in a Bible study, and, the, and the, the youth director announced that the topic of the day for the Bible study was going to be on dudes. She had no idea what he was talking about, and uh, didn't want to, not wanting to look like an idiot, she just started frantically taking notes. And then suddenly, in the middle of the Bible study, she realized that the study topic was doubts. Uh, her youth pastor was a Canadian, and uh, he had been uh, apparently mispronouncing the word. So I've been in the country for 26 years now, and uh, so I think I've got it down. I think I've got, got it down. But if I, you know, I'm going to say this word quite a bit uh, this morning, so if I ever mispronounce it and slip into doots, you know that I mean doubts. Okay? All right. That's out of the way. So here in church, um, doubt is a bad word. I mean, it's just, it's one of the swear words we have here, right? Doubt is bad. Doubt is, doubt, doubters are unbelievers. Doubters are skeptics. Doubters are cynics. Doubters are dissenters. Right? So that's bad. On, conversely, faith is good. Faith is a good word. People with faith are upheld 
we strive to be faithful, we celebrate belief, we celebrate conviction, blessed assurance we sing, Jesus is mine. So that's kind of the way it goes. Now, some of you may be here this morning and uh, you're not really familiar with the church thing or you're not as much because you didn't grow up in the church and you see that same kind of dynamic going on, doubt, bad, faith, good, but you see it from a different perspective. From your perspective, it's a little negative. And so let's be honest. From outside the church fold, it looks like this. You see, first of all, yes, people filled with certainty. And uh, it's a little disconcerting. I mean, they are completely and totally certain about their beliefs. They're happy, jump up and down. God is in the house, certain. And, and, it, and it's strange to you because it's not like a certainty of a subjective value type thing like a Seahawks game and everyone's saying, the Seahawks are the best team in football. You know, actually, that is objectively true. But uh, you get what I'm saying. You know, not a value statement, but these guys are like certain about... Um, uh, incredible things that they take as literal fact. For example, insiders to church are certain that you can trust as divinely re- revealed knowledge every word from this Bronze Age book they study every week. And they are certain that a man who walked and talked among us was in fact God. They're certain about that. They are certain for that matter that God exists at all, this incredibly invisible entity. They are also certain that God talks to them. Have you listened So they say, you know, the Lord said to me, and brother, I have a word from the Lord for you. That's how they talk. They are certain about these things. So that's what you see. And if you're outside the fold, you also may see then all this lack of doubt makes you oddly uh, concerned about what faith means. Like, what does faith mean? Faith for these certainty-filled Christians must be believing things without evidence. And you might find yourself in agreement with Mark Twain who said, faith is believing things you know ain't so. So that might be your kind of take on this whole thing. So today, I want to take those two assumptions that you might have, whether you're inside or outside the church, and I want to explode them, okay? That's my goal today, is to show how they are completely wrong. But then how, first of all, did we come to have such a broken understanding of faith? Well, here's how I think it goes down. Jesus, as you probably know, chastised people for lack of faith. He did it over and over again. In fact, just one sampling here in Matthew chapter 8. Why are you fearful? You of little doubt. Matthew 14. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew 16. You of little faith. Matthew 17. Because of your little faith. I mean, faith is a big deal. And he ties it to this issue of doubt. So misunderstanding these statements conditions us in two ways to think about faith. One is, we think that faith and doubt are somehow opposites because Jesus puts them in the sentence together all the time. So, we know doubt is a lack of certainty. That's what doubt means. So, if faith is the opposite, then faith must be total certainty. Like light and dark, they can't exist in the same place. You can't have faith and and, uh, doubt in the same place. So, believing that, then, I become a person who ignores anything that might corrode 100% certainty. Well, how do you keep, maintain 100% certainty? You have to stop asking questions. You have to stop investigating. You have to kind of turn your brain off. You have to stop thinking, right? You have to be blind to the facts. But what if you actually have doubts and you're amongst people of faith? Well, I I don't know. I get, you're in trouble. Like basically what you have to do is uh, put on a good act. Take some acting classes, talk louder, talk brasher. And that way you'll convince people, you got faith, right? 
You've got faith. You've got belief. Because we know that belief means 100% certainty. So that's how we come to equate faith with certainty and faith with blind belief. Believing things without evidence. But is that really what faith means? Uh Uh-uh. So let's give a new definition, one that will replace the one you've got. The Bible defines faith for us in Hebrews chapter 11, 1 and 2. Let's read it. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Now, first blush, you read this and you go, huh, Rick, that's interesting. You throw that out, that out there as the, as the substitute definition because it seems like that kind of affirms faith as blind certainty. But let's look a little deeper. Faith, the author is saying, makes real what you hope for. So what is it that's hoped for? That's critical to understanding the definition, the biblical definition of faith. What is it that's being hoped for? Well, you have to read the entire chapter to figure that out. And uh, Hebrews 11 is this rich chapter that tells us about the thing that is hoped for is the promise that God has made in the past. That's the specific thing that the person of faith is hoping for or hoping in. So what faith really is then is a confident expectation. It is a trust that God will do as he says. That as he has acted in the past, he will act again in the future, even though that thing is not here right now in the present. That's why it has to be hoped for. See, there's a delay between promise and delivery, and that delay presents a difficulty. So faith then spans the gap and brings the delivery hope into the present so you can live in that hope. That's what he's talking about. Now look at the second piece of the definition. Proof of what is not seen does not mean that faith is blind. Proof of what is not seen does not mean that faith is believing things without evidence. That would actually be total nonsense. It would turn that phrase into faith is the evidence, because he uses the word evidence. Faith is the evidence of things that have no evidence. That's kind of dumb, isn't it? Like totally absurd. That's not what he means. Refer back to the context. Again, what are the things not seen? The things not seen are specifically the promises of God. Not seen doesn't mean without reason. Not seen means not here yet. So to give you an example of that, you go to the airport and you're waiting for your friend and you're sitting there waiting in expectation for a plane to arrive. That doesn't mean you have no reasons. Where's the plane? It's not here yet. Well, are you completely irrational for going to the airport? No. You have reasons to be at the airport to expect a plane to arrive. You don't have belief in that without any reason. In fact, the rest of Hebrews 18, if you read the chapter, go home, read it sometime this week, it recounts God's faithful promise delivery in the past. And the reason the author throws story after story of God's faithful promise delivery in the past is to bolster your confidence of promise delivery in the future as evidence for you, as a reason for you. So in the Bible, faith is not certainty. It's not blind belief. Let me give you a replacement definition. Faith is a trust in what you have reason to believe is true despite difficulty. So let me just say it again, just so we can kind of firmly supplant the old definition, faith is blind certainty, okay? So faith is a trust in what you have reason to believe is true despite difficulty. So... Uh, AC3, you can see then, with a new definition like that, faith is not the opposite of uh, doubt. 
Faith is the answer to doubt. And that's why Jesus put them in the same sentence. Now let me drive this point home with a picture, just so we get it. Doubts come from what? They come from uncertainty. They come from the question that we all ask, I want to know what is true. Okay, so you see that on the left side of the diagram here, doubt. Doubt springs from the question, what is true? We want to get to a place of certainty. And that's the other side of this thing. That is what the opposite of doubt is, is certainty. We want to get to the place of saying, this is true. What is true? This is true. Now, how are you going to get from doubt to certainty? How are you going to get from one side to the other? Well, you do what Jared was talking about in his testimony. You engage in what Jesus told us to do. You ask, you seek, you knock. And that means you engage your reason. You look at facts. You marshal arguments. That's what you're doing. You're asking, you're seeking, you're knocking because doubt is driving you to seek the truth. And this begins to build a bridge from uncertainty to certainty. But we never get all the way there. Let me explain. Let's see how this works. Uh, let's throw in any doubt that you want, but let's throw in a really obvious thing. Uh, here's a question. Do you believe that Rick is speaking to you right now? Does anybody here doubt that? Think about it for just a second. You may say, of course, I have 100% certainty that you're talking to me right now, Rick. Uh, why would you put such a foolish question out there? Well, if you've been to philosophy class, you know that you might be a butterfly dreaming. You're at AC3 listening to Rick speak right now. How do you know? Last night you dreamed you were a butterfly, then you woke up, now you're a person in church. Maybe you're really a butterfly and this is the dream. You don't know. You don't know. Okay. So your philosophy professor will put at least a little bit of doubt into your mind that you're actually listening to me speak to you right now. I know that my sermons haunt the dreams of most of you. So uh, despite that doubt, you, you begin to seek. You ask, you seek, you knock, and you begin to find evidence as you seek the truth about that statement. Is Rick speaking to me right now? Your mind reminds you, yeah, you got up out of your bed, and as Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. So I think, and I can remember, yes, uh, that I went to church this morning. Then your senses are giving you input. Your ears are telling you right now. Your hearing voice, Rick's voice, ring in your ears. And then finally, if you wanted to, you could turn to the person next to you, and they would confirm the fact for you that Rick is, in fact, speaking to you right now. Now, you would arrive at almost 100% certainty that Rick is speaking to you right now. Now, I say almost. Why? For even such a thing as obvious as this, why almost 100% certainty? Well, did you notice that what you were doing when you started to seek the truth, you made several key assumptions? Number one, you assume that your brain works, right? I mean, what's the foundation for you to believe that your brain works, that your brain is giving you accurate information? That's why Christians really have a, a, a better foundation for that than a completely materialistic system. If it's just a monkey brain, why, why, what, what reason do you have to trust a monkey brain? That Darwin had a huge issue with that. I don't know why I should trust my own perceptions. And there's that. You trusted your perceptions. You trusted your senses. The, the, the last thing you did is you, you could trusted the people around you, which may be a big mistake because it's Alan Creek, and you, know, you might be sitting beside an ex-convict or something. You know, this, this is where the liars go, we like to say. So, um, so you had all of these assumptions, all of these uh, expressions of trust on your way to, to trying to come to certainty. And that trust helped make up the gap between doubt and certainty so that you could commit yourself to the belief that Rick is speaking to me right now. So there's that gap. What do you call that gap-filling 
trust between the reason and the facts and the evidence. What do you call that? Well, that's what we call faith. Faith is covering the distance between good reasons and total certainty. And everybody does it. Every reasonable person exercises this kind of faith. Notice, faith is not blind. It rests on evidence. But notice, it's also not 100% certainty. Faith is only needed when you don't have 100% certainty. And you'd be surprised at how many things in your life where you really don't have 100% certainty. You're going to exercise faith 100 times between now and when you go home. For example, just getting in your car will be an act of faith. You're going to leave here today. You're going to get in your car. If you knew with 100% certainty that your car wouldn't work, would you get in it? No, you wouldn't. You'd call the tow company first. You wouldn't just march on over to your car as if it was just going to work. But that's what you're going to do in belief that it will. Is it impossible that your car wouldn't work? No, it's possible. If you have a 1994 Geo Metro like my son, it's very possible. Very possible but you're still going to get in your car and you're not going to think for a second that you're exercising faith based in evidence. And what is your evidence? Well, the car was working this morning. That's evidence. Uh, you, You have service records. That's evidence. Your maintenance of the vehicle. That's evidence. Your experience with cars in the past. That's evidence that it will, in fact, work. And based on that faith, you'll get in your car and drive. And now if that whole thing seems like a very trivial thing to you. Let's import a very important question into the grid. Does God exist? Let's throw that one in there, shall we? So what do you begin with? You begin with uncertainty. Of course you begin with uncertainty. God is by definition invisible and spiritual. And this is sometimes made fun of by your materialist friends. Uh, One example of that is Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. Some of you remember the story. He's, you know, the first uh, human into space. uh, And when he returned from space, he reported, I I did not meet God there, which was his dig at the believing West, right? You know, I did not meet God there, everybody. You know, we we looked under every nook and cranny and even out in space, and he's not there. He's invisible. C.S. Lewis retorted, uh, responding directly to Yuri Gagarin, this is in the 1960s, he said, if there is a God who created the world and created us, I could no more meet him than Hamlet could meet Shakespeare. If Hamlet wants to meet Shakespeare, or to prove there is a Shakespeare, he's not going to be able to find Shakespeare by going up into the top of the stage, which is a reference to Yuri Gagarin going into space. The only way he will know something about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes something about himself into the play. And that is precisely the question. Has God written himself into the play? So you go asking and seeking and knocking, and you find evidence. You find evidence in cosmology. You find evidence in fine-tuning. You find evidence in morality. You find evidence in design. You find evidence in the life of Jesus. You find evidence in your own experience of the supernatural. You find evidence all over the place. And so you commit yourself. You believe. But remember what we said, faith is believing, coming to trust that which we have good reason to believe is true, despite difficulty. And speaking of difficulty, let's say you just hear the rebuttal to the arguments from existence and morality and design and fine-tuning. Let's say you hear someone who disagrees whether they even think Jesus existed, like he wasn't even a historical person or not. Let's say you you hear those arguments, because those arguments are out there. The rebuttal to the Christian evidence. Now... You're in full-blown crisis of faith. It looks something like this. Some of your evidence seems to have slipped away. It's like it's, 
it's sort of fading. Next slide, please. So you kind of see it kind of uh, going away and um, uh, really, next slide, please. Oh, thanks. It's, that's my son back there. He's, he's just right on it. So, um, uh, so what happens to your faith gap? It, it gets bigger, doesn't it? So your faith gap kind of uh, widens uh, out a little bit. Now, is this cause for concern? If you hear something that feels like negative evidence? Yeah, it's, it's cause for concern. You might have found a real reason to disbelieve that God exists. So your faith gap gets bigger. And you, you hear about people having faith crises. This is what's going on, right? Or at least that's what they think is mostly going on. We'll talk about it a little bit. That may not be what's going on. But they feel like their evidence is slipping away from them. They come upon what they believe is reasons to disbelieve. And so they're in a faith crisis. Now, will they hang on to belief in the middle of their faith crises? Well, AC3, it will break. It will break one of two ways. It could go this way. If they think they originally came to their conviction based on good evidence, they will not give up on that lightly. They will hang on to faith despite difficulties. Remember, faith is not certainty. It's trusting that you have good reasons to believe despite difficulties. And here's a difficulty. So you will hold that difficulty in suspense, assuming that uh, future study will resolve the difficulty. And that could be one way that you go. The other way that you go is that you might think that all of your evidence is crumbling underneath your feet. It's totally collapsing, and then someone might abandon their belief in God altogether. And let's just be honest, that might be you. Or it might be someone you know, a son or a daughter. And they just finally said to themselves, you know, I'm looking for the baby in all this bathwater of Christian nonsense. And I keep scooping out all the water, and there's no baby in here. Boom. And they finally just say, no, I'm not a believer anymore. When that faith leap gets too big, a person who's hungering for righteousness might, might come down to 0% certainty. And at that point, they just say that Christianity can no longer be supported by reason, and they're gone. Now listen, I'm going to say something that's very controversial, or maybe at least will surprise some of you. No one at this church would ask you to hang on to your belief in Jesus if you thought that the best weight of the evidence was against it. I would never ask you to do that. I, I would never think that you should hang on to the Christian gospel if you think, honestly, that the best weight of the evidence is against it. Christians believe in truth. We, we follow the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We, Christians and, and this isn't just me or this church, although some churches have shamed people for, for having questions and, and having questions about the reasons for the church. But, but reason has been a core value for the church from forever. Uh, Tertullian was a second century church leader who said, reason is a thing of God. So no one here is going to say, just believe already. Like gullibility is not a Christian value. And so we won't uphold it as such. However... I will caution those of you who are in a full-blown crisis of faith by saying this. Guess what? Everyone makes faith leaps. Everyone. doesn't matter what your worldview is. Everybody makes faith assumptions about the universe. Christians aren't the only ones who experience disconfirming evidence. Let me give you an example of that. C.S. Lewis spent, spent 
three decades as a committed atheist. And one time he wrote, now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Everybody experiences disconfirming evidence. Everybody. And Francis Bacon uh, said, doubt or skepticism may chase a man out of the church. A little more may chase him back in. Do you understand? You sometimes get to the place where you doubt, and then hopefully you get to a place where you doubt your doubts, and then you might just find yourself right back where you started. But that first impulse to say, no, I will not believe just because you told me. I will not believe just because it was tradition. I will not believe without any reasons. And so finally you say, I'm done. I will not hold a sham in my mind, in my heart. And you walk out the door. And guess what, friend? That may be your first religious experience you've ever had. The moment you walk out the door of a church. Your first religious experience. Because you are finally saying, I'm going to pursue. I'm going to ask and I'm going to seek, and I'm going to knock until the door is opened. <laughs> doubt may be your first step towards God. And speaking of which, that's a good segue to talk about how doubt is often good. Doubt is good. Doubt is useful. Now you say, how can that possibly be? Because knowledge is power, and uncertainty is so unpleasant. So how can not knowing be good? John Ortberg gives us four reasons in that excellent book, No Doubt that Dan read for us earlier. First, doubt makes us humble. You ever seen this cartoon? Peter says at the pearly gates, you were a believer, yes, you just missed the not being a jerk about it part. <laughs> I love that. You know, there's a lot of people who'd be better believers if they, were, they doubted a little bit more. You know, why would that be? You know, we throw around this language a little too cavalierly in church circles. The Lord told me. Brother, I've got a word from the Lord for you. I think we're a little too loose with that sometimes in the Christian experience. And um, interestingly, when people talk like that a lot, what it always seems like God is doing is confirming their desires. He's always anointing their common sense. Huh, funny that, voice of God. And see, friend, that is the kind of blind certainty that is keeping that person from going deep with God and being gentle and, and sweet and humble about their uh, dearly held beliefs. And so for them, it's all about God doing exactly what they expect. It's about God always making sense. It's about God knowing, them knowing God's purpose behind everything. I, I just find that stunningly arrogant that they would think that they know that. Let us remember, the book of Job is in your canon, it's in the Bible, and it is a book of white-hot doubt. And the, and, the, and the hero of the story is the doubter, Job, who questions God's goodness, questions God's presence, questions God's fairness, accuses God of being absent, and the villains in the story are the people of absolute certainty. God always does this, and God never does that, really. And at the end, who is affirmed? The doubter is the one who's affirmed. And notice those, those uh, confident friends of Job, they didn't really have faith. They had certainty. They had certainty. So there was more faith in Job's honest confusion than there was in his friend's pious certainty. We would be so much more humble if we had a little bit more of that. And then secondly, uncertainty helps clarify the heart. See, sometimes doubt is good because it reveals what I'm really 
about on the inside. And sometimes I think I'm about the evidence. I think I'm all about logic. I'm a reason machine. And really, I'm about something else. See, take a look at this, friend. Um, I have faith that anesthesia works. I have a firm belief in that. I believe that doctors will not cut me open until they numb me up. And I believe that that stuff works. Or else, like, here I'm bleeding on a table. Like, who would allow someone to do that unless you believe in anesthesia? But then there comes the moment when the ether mask comes down, like Darth Vader, you know, clamping down in your face. And at that moment, you have a kind of panic that comes over you. Oh, no. This is going to hurt. Oh, no. What's, what's going on? I'm losing my faith in anesthesia. Now, ask yourself, what's come upon me? Has new reasons and evidence? I'm, uh, excuse me, doctor. Before you put the ether mask on, the medical journal that I just read said that anesthesia under certain conditions, no, no, no. There's no new facts. You're not marshalling new evidence that is causing you to doubt anesthesia. What's come upon you is a mood blitz. And it's driven by your fear, it's driven by your emotion, by your imagination, by your temptations. And sometimes we think that all that's going on is, well, I'm just all about the reasons. And really what you're all about is perhaps a mood blitz. There come a time when maybe you just don't want Christianity to be true. And that's the truth. They say there's no atheists in foxholes. Well... Guess what? There's no theists in brothels. You know what I mean? There's no theists in brothels. There comes a time when you want to do something a little nasty, when it becomes really, really inconvenient for Christianity to be true. And so now suddenly, boom, it's not true. Huh. There comes a time when you want to gain that little shady bit of money, and now you're wondering if Christianity is really true. Hmm. There comes a time when you want to sleep with that person who's not your spouse, and you're wondering if Christianity is true. There comes a time when you want to give in to pride, and, and it's a moment when it would be really, really convenient if Christianity were not true. But if any real reasons come up against it, no. Our brains are not logic machines, AC3. And that's why faith is the answer to doubt. It is not the opposite of doubt. It answers doubt because it causes you to hang on to what you have good reason to believe is true despite difficulty. The difficulty of what? Well, a mood blitz or temptation or fear. So doubt is good. It reveals that stuff. And thirdly, doubt makes trusting possible. How many of you saw the movie Stepford Wives or read the book? Anybody? Okay, so... The big idea here is there's a community, a, a suburb, where all the wives are replaced by robots. Okay? And these robot wives are completely certain. I mean, they're cyber spouses. They're totally predictable. No uncertainty, no frustration, no need for trust. Now, if you're a man, this is, would you want this situation? I mean, why would you want, a, really, would you really want a woman who, who uh, always dressed up for you, always fixed all the food that you want, always agreed with everything that you said? The right answer here is no. Okay? Just, I'm going to feed that one to you. That one's, that one's free. No, AC3, look. I mean, honestly, the Stepford community is a nightmare community. Why? Because there's no relationship. Because there's no trust. No, no trust is required when you're dealing with a robot. We want 100% certainty when we're dealing with machines, but not when we're dealing with humans. 100% certainty destroys trust. 
And that destroys relationship. How so? Well, we've all seen these new security cams, right? They're, they come everywhere. You can have your security cam updated you on your mobile device. Anytime you want, you can see anything you want to see where you have the cam. Well, what if you had a spouse cam? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, that would be awesome. Then you could know for a verifiable fact that they were faithful to you. You could know that they were where they said they were going to be. You, you would know that they're spending the money on what they said they were spending the money on. 100% certainty. Wouldn't that be great? No, it would be terrible. Because you wouldn't have a relationship and you know that trust would be just dismantled by that kind of a system. And you would no longer have intimacy. That's not relationship. Relationship requires you to give trust as a gift. And it makes you vulnerable. Okay, I'm giving you my trust. Are you going to come through? I don't know. I don't know. I have doubt. I have uncertainty. And when that trust is returned with faithfulness, now there's intimacy. Now there's the soaring heights of joy and oneness and affection. And that only happens where there's uncertainty. And friends, maybe that's why God loves to build faith. And maybe that's why he's so much less obsessed with certainty than we are. Maybe that's why he's left so much of himself out of the world. Maybe it's because he's not into coercion. He's into relationships. Friend, God doesn't want you to enter coins into the vending machine and get the carefully controlled result out. He wants you to enter a dance. And you don't have that without uncertainty. Here's a fourth and last thing. We'll end with this. Doubt pushes us to seek the truth. Some of you remember the story, John the Baptist, when he had some serious doubts. Now, here's a guy who built his faith on Jesus as the Messiah on solid evidence. He was there at the baptism of Jesus, and there was the voice from heaven, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. John, what? All right, wow, and he also knew the circumstances of Jesus' birth. He, he was a, a family member. Uh, he was cousin of Jesus, so he kind of knew. The, he had good evidence to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Suddenly, he finds himself in prison. He's a few weeks from having his head cut off, and it will be cut off. And you can imagine, he's experiencing a dark day. And so he wants to know, hmm, have I bet the farm on the wrong uh, star? So he sends some disciples to Jesus and say, to say, are you the one that we should expect or should we look for somebody else? After all that evidence that John has, now he's skeptical. Now suddenly he's questioning, why? Has he come under new evidence? Has he got any new facts? To disconfirm that Jesus is the one, the Christ, the son of the living God? No, he's in prison. He's in prison. He's under a full-blown mood blitz. And so what's he doing? He's pursuing truth. And doubt is causing him to pursue it. He says, are you the one? And what does Jesus say? He says to John's disciples, you go back and you tell John to shut up and just believe it already. Mm, no, no, that's not what he says. No, you go to the text and Jesus says, you go back and you tell John what you have seen and heard. The lame walk, the blind see, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the lowly are told that God is on their side. Evidence. See, because he's seeking truth, he goes to that dark valley of doubt and somewhere on the other side is the confirmation after pursuing 
truth through the valley of doubt. Because now finally, truth is just what matters. In doubt, he asked, he sought, he pressed, and then he was rewarded. Listen, I found that time and time again. I have slogged through some serious skeptical literature, AC3. You know why I've done that? I've done that because I want to speak cogently to non-Christians' concerns about the Christian faith. Well, you know what? When I've done that, when that happens, my evidence gets challenged. And so does my certainty. And then I just buckle down and I say, wait a minute, I follow the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the truth will set you free. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Ask, seek, knock. That's the guy I follow. So I'm doubling down on truth seeking. I just want to know what's true. I just want to know what's true. And I walk through some dark valleys, wondering. And it might take uh, some of those dark valleys, but then I realize that according to Jesus, if you search for truth at the end of the tunnel, guess who you'll find? Him. You'll find Him. So let doubt cause you to think and question and struggle. Let, let yourself go through the valley of the shadow of death. Walk yourself through the dark night of the soul. Like Jared said, I just had to buckle down on the same thing Jesus said. Ask, seek, knock. Now what do you do with all this, AC3? Let's end here. Sometimes, friends, you'll be called upon to make a 100% commitment with less than 100% certainty. And that's the question for you about Jesus this morning. He calls you to 100% commitment and you're not going to get 100% certainty. You're not. You're just not going to get it. But are there the moments when that is important? That is it important for you to have 100% commitment without 100% certainty? And that doesn't make you an idiot? And that doesn't make you insane or irrational? Yes. Let me give you a few examples. Jumping out of an airplane. Which I've done. 100% commitment when you went, whoa! Not 100% certainty, let me tell you. I bungee jumped before. 100% commitment when I went, yo! Not 100% certainty. When I got married. Think about that. What if we said in our vows uh, that, we, that we were reflective of the amount of certainty? Like you're 92% certain. I'm, not, I'm 92% certain. And your vows reflected that, right? John, I'm going to give you a good, solid 92% commitment right now. And stand before God and the preacher and everybody and say, I will be 92% faithful. Because I, 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 that's where I'm, I'm hovering around, 92, 95% certainty here. 92%, you are the woman for me. That would not go over well. That would not fly. No, no, it was all in. All in. All that I have, all that I am, I to thee endow. 100% commitment, not 100% certainty. So, question, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? He's calling you into the dance. He's calling you to faith. Are there reasons? Oh, yes, there are reasons. Investigate, ask, seek, knock. We have a class around here just for the very purpose of giving you reasons for faith, but you're never going to have 100% certainty. So my question to you, AC3, is are you ready for the commitment of faith, for the all-in commitment? We have a baptism coming up, and that's your public demonstration. I'm all in. I'm all in. 100% certainty? No. No one has that. But I have reason to believe 
that Jesus is true. And I'm going under the water to show him and the world. Let's pray together. God, there may be someone here who right now is really struggling with this. And God, I just pray that you would uh, be wooing them, calling them, as I know you already have been. That's why they're sitting here in this room this morning. And God, we understand that without faith, it's impossible to enter the dance. Without faith, it's impossible to have relationship. So Lord, we realize that based on reasons, but not exhaustive reasons, you call us into the water. And may we, we, be, may we be willing, courageously willing this morning to take that step of faith you're asking us to take, to commit ourselves, to surrender our whole person, our past, our present, our future, into the hands of Jesus, whom we have good reason to believe is the author of life. And we know that you're going to meet us there, for as we give up our life, we will find it again. I thank you for that beautiful truth and for confirming yourself to us in so many wonderful ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, C3, thank you. Thank you for hanging with us this morning.